Okay, if I could get your attention, we'll get started again. We're starting a new series, uh, as you surely know, on the Gospel of Luke. It'll be 10 weeks, 10 Mondays in a row here, in, and we'll be studying the Gospel of Luke. Today, we're studying the first two chapters. So this is not going to be the, you know, two verses and a trail of dust type deal. This is going to be a more of a broad view. We're going to have to take in all 24 chapters of Luke in 10 weeks. So we will be moving, and it really will help if you all uh, actually do your questions. And, and uh, if you've been here before, you know I put next week's questions on the table. Uh, you can also get the questions electronically off the website that you can see up on the screen. So it's, uh, you can see at the top, charlietaylorministries.com. You go and uh, click on the appropriate place, and you can find the questions, or you can find a message that I send out usually every Thursday on our next lesson. So there's quite a bit of material on there. Uh, if you would like us to send you these messages and questions directly, uh, then and you're not getting them directly, then you need to give us your email. Uh, you can give Mike uh, out front your email, or you can give it to me, whatever you want to do, and we'll put you on the list, and you'll get the regular weekly uh, messages and, and what have you. Also, uh, any announcements that we make, as for, you know, every now and then we have to change locations or whatever, and it makes us uh, able to contact you if we have your email. All right? So, uh, I think that pretty much covers it. Most of you, I think, have been here before, and, and you know the drill. Um, we are studying chapter 1 and 2 of the Gospel of Luke. Uh, and, you know, the, the Gospel, and, and it wasn't until this study that I figured it out. The Gospel of Luke is really a very joyful, a very exciting, a very happy uh, Gospel, a, a message from the author about the life of Christ, and it's, uh, you know, I was thinking about, you know, that, that, that joy, that excitement, that kind of party atmosphere that he portrays. I was thinking of this movie clip. <laughs> oh, that just tickles me. You know? <laughs> me, that's really funny. I, in fact, I, was, I had looked at that Saturday, and uh, right after that, you know, I was just all just giggling and giddy and laughing, and I, I couldn't get that music out of my mind, you know. And I, we were going out to eat, and Cindy said, why are you so happy? What's, what's going on? I said, I just watched that movie clip of A Wonderful Life. It just, you know, it just made me happy, you know. And I was thinking about this morning, and, and I thought, you know, when, when you think about the Gospel of Luke, you ought to have the same reaction. You ought to have the same uh, excitement and just be in a good mood and laughing uh, like, like they were in that, in that movie clip. And it, uh, because the Gospel... The gospel of Luke. You know what the gospel means? What that, what that word means? It means good news. It's the good news. So what Luke is doing is writing us, providing us with the good news about Jesus Christ and what he's done for us, about what God has caused to happen for us on our behalf. So Luke brings us that good news. And as we study it, you'll see it. Every part of it is good news. Uh, today's lesson... The long-awaited coming of the Christ, our Savior, is, is in today's lesson. So it's like 
all right, let's party. You know, it's time. A prize, a genuine love. <laughs> Every part of Luke's gospel, all 24 chapters, deserves a party. Even if the uh, parts in the gospel are about, you know, what some people get offended by, you know, the, his, Jesus' struggle with the hypocrites, uh, you know, to us, though, that's great. We know there's hypocrites in the world. God's going to fix it. He's going to right all wrongs, take away evil, and it's all through what Christ has done. And even judgment, the parts about judgment, for us, uh, it's, it's not even going to apply because, as the Scripture says, there is now no condemnation in Christ Jesus. So, let's party, right? Hey, what did we lose? <laughs> I think all day I'll be humming that song and I'll be doing the... <laughs> so, the people, if you have your, if you have your Bible, turn to uh, Luke chapter 1 and 2. Uh, today's lesson, the people in Luke 1 and 2, are, they're all happy. Again, I, until I studied for this lesson, I didn't, I didn't realize how happy all these people were. I mean, there's about eight stories in the first two chapters, and they're all about people excited and happy and praising God and worshiping because of what God's about to do and what He does in these first two chapters. Uh, and what, what is He doing? He's fulfilling all of their hopes and expectations. So these people are living in hope, in a state of hope and expectation of something great happening, something great coming, and God is going to fulfill it at this point in time, and they're all going to be happy like a big party. So uh, what was going on at the time that, that you know, caused them to live in this kind of hope and, and looking forward to something else? In first century Israel, uh, everybody had the expectation of a coming Messiah. Everybody was looking for this great leader. Everybody was looking for a king. Um, Israel had been under Gentile, some foreign rule for 600 years. Subjugation, oppression, being overtaxed, beaten down. Yet all the prophets during that time predicted and promised that God was going to help. God was going to send their deliverer, their king, their Messiah. And they were looking forward to that. They were all expecting it. I mean, if you think of all the prophecies in the Old Testament, there's hundreds, just a few that are they're well known. Isaiah 7, he said, a virgin will be with child. I mean, yeah, a virgin shall be with child, and this will be the one. Chapter 9, a child will be born called Wonderful Counselor, Prince of Peace, and he will bring in the glory of the kingdom of God. Daniel chapter 2, the king is coming to set up God's eternal kingdom. Jeremiah 29, God says, I have a great plan for you to give you a future and a hope. Joel chapter 2, I will pour out my Holy Spirit on all mankind when the Messiah comes. Amos 9, 14, the days are coming when I will restore my people. Micah 5, a ruler from God will be born in Bethlehem. 
Zechariah 9.9, shout for joy, Jerusalem, for your king is coming to you. Chapter 14.4, his feet, the Messiah's, will stand on the Mount of Olives. In Malachi 3, I will send my messenger who will be like Elijah before the day of the Lord, and he will clear the way for the Messiah. Those are just a few of hundreds of passages, prophecies, predictions in the Old Testament about what God was going to do. So in spite of their subjugation, in spite of all their troubles, they were looking forward, they were living in the hope and the expectation of what God had promised to do. Uh, they were looking that God would send His Christ to relieve their suffering, to get rid of the evil, end the evil that was being done against them, forgive their own sins, and begin the kingdom of God and give them eternal life. That's what they were expecting. Um, when you think about it, there's parties at the end of wars. You know, if you remember World War II at the end, all those, you know, many of us were there. And the ones who weren't, you've seen the old movies and the pictures about everybody had a big party at the end of this awful war. Uh, war. Uh, they have parties when guys get what the, they deserve, when the bad guy gets what he deserves, right? Uh, good people are vindicated. Uh, parties when we realize great success and gain, right? Imagine the party when the Messiah comes and ends evil and sets up the kingdom of God and fulfills all of our fondest hopes and expectations. That's what we're looking at here in Luke chapter 1 and 2. And all the characters at the end of these eight, each of these little eight stories are praising and worshiping and excited about what God's done, and they're telling others. So let's look at chapter, uh, Luke chapter 1 and 2. Uh, verse one, and, 1 through 4, Luke, uh, th I love this about Luke. This really sets Luke apart from the other gospel writers, what he says here in verse 1 through 4. It's his purpose statement. It's his introduction, but it's also his purpose statement. Uh, Luke was a medical doctor. We know that from Colossians chapter 4. Paul said that. Luke was a medical doctor. He was a scientist. He was a historian. He was a detective. Now, think about that. All of those pursue precision and accuracy and truth. And that's what Luke was about. Not hearsay. Not speculation. Not rumor. You know, when something great happens, something awesome happens, everybody's telling stories about it. And the stories don't always match up. And uh, you wonder, I wonder if that was right or that was right or they're all right. I, you know, you don't know firsthand. And so what Luke was going to do is talk to all the eyewitnesses that were there. Compare the stories and compare them to all the stuff he'd heard before he got there. And then he was going to accurately double check all the facts and then write an account of the life and ministry of Christ. And that's what he did. He compiled, he interviewed all the eyewitnesses and then wrote his account. Look what he says. Inasmuch as many have undertaken, so a whole lot of people have tried to write stuff about Christ and what he did and who he was. As many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word They've handed them down to us. So he wasn't, Luke wasn't an original eyewitness. He was a Gentile 
that became a disciple of Paul on his missionary journeys. And he lived with Paul for quite a, quite a few years, and all his information came from the other eyewitnesses like Paul. So it says, uh, verse 3, it seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated. So he's, he's closely investigated everything carefully from the beginning, meaning all the people that, who were there at the beginning, and now I want to write it out for you in consecutive order. Okay? So that's what Luke is, is about here. That's why he's writing this. And here's the purpose statement, verse 4. So that you may know the exact truth. The exact truth about the things you have been taught. So all the, the other three Gospels, the, the guys who wrote them, they were eyewitnesses themselves. And so they wrote down what they saw and experienced in their time with Christ. Luke has a little bit of advantages because he interviewed all those guys. He, he uh, spent quite a bit of time in Jerusalem. He was in nearby Caesarea uh, helping Paul when he was in jail there for two years. And he had plenty of time and plenty of access to all the apostles and a whole bunch of other eyewitnesses there in Jerusalem. And most historians and most uh, church tradition is he even interviewed Mary, the mother of Jesus. Because he's the only one that knows the, the, the birth story from Mary's point of view. Only in Luke do you see the angel appearing to Mary and you, you see the conversation between the angel Gabriel and Mary. And you, and you get to read what Mary's response was. So I take it because of what Luke says here and what uh, uh, church tradition and what historians say, Luke actually interviewed all the eyewitnesses, including Mary. And that's incredible to me. Man, to me, that is just awesome to, to have this letter, to be able to read it and study it and know that this guy took such careful investigation and, and talked to all these people that were there who heard it and saw it in person. So to me, not only that, uh, he says, I, I laid it out in consecutive order. Uh, if you study the other, four, the other three accounts, uh, they don't take much, they're, they're not really interested in chronology. I mean, they're generally laid out chronologically, but uh, you can tell that, you know, that's not what their intent is. They just want the life of Jesus laid out, and they do it their way. I think Luke is the only one that you can really depend on to lay it out chronologically. So if you're looking at, okay, when did Jesus do that, and what was the order of this, this, and this, I would go to Luke every time. I would go with his account every time. Okay? Uh, and then in verse 5 through 25, the, the next story, the next section, you have the announcement of the birth of John the Baptist. Uh, as I read earlier, Malachi said, God said, I'm going to send a forerunner. He's going to be like Elijah. He's going to make going to set the stage for the Christ, the Messiah. He's going to tell all the people about him, okay, and wake them up. And so that's what chapter 5 through 25, uh, you see we're introduced to the parents of John the Baptist, and we see right off the bat that there's going to be a miraculous birth. You, you naturally know about the miraculous birth of Christ, born to a virgin, but you may not have realized that the birth of John the Baptist was a miraculous birth as well. 
his parents had been praying for a child for years and years and years. Now they were beyond childbearing years. So they assumed it was too late, couldn't happen. And the angel appears to them and says, now is when God is going to answer your prayers. Because now it suits God's purpose and in God's timing. And everybody will know that this is a miracle from God because he waited this, line, this long and at this time. And so you have the prediction from the angel, verse 11, the angel of the Lord appeared and uh, told Zacharias about it. And he says, your petition has been heard, but you got a little problem in there that Zechariah, I mean, that's amazing to me throughout the Bible when this happens, angels appear, God speaks, whatever. And what do people do? This tells you how stubborn we are, <laughs> right? They go, well, Lord, uh, that can't happen. I'm, we're beyond childbearing. How's that going to happen? <laughs> you know, you have to prove to me that that's part. I mean, can you, Really? The God that created you from nothing, and you're arguing with him about how. But that's what we do. That's who we are. That's what makes us great. Great sinners. <laughs> and so uh, because he doubted, it kind of was a two-edged sword. Not only did it kind of, in a sense, discipline him, admonish him for doubting, but at the same time, it enabled God to give a sign of the validity of what he was getting ready to do. So all of a sudden, Zacharias couldn't talk. And, God, and the angel says, you know, because you doubted, you're not going to be able to talk until your son's born. And so he comes out. He's been serving there in the temple as a priest. And he comes out, and he's like just white as a ghost, and his eyes are this big. And everybody that's there can tell something awesome's happened. And they go, what happened? What was that in there? We saw some kind of glory in there or something, and we heard you talking. What was it? And he goes, mm, mm, mm. <laughs> he can't talk. <laughs> and he doesn't talk until John, the, John his son John, is uh, born. And at that time, somebody says, well, what are you going to name him? Uh, surely you're going you're to name him Zacharias Jr. He says, no, I'm going to name him John. They said, well, there's nobody in your family named John. Surely you're not going to do that. And he said, yeah, this, this is from God. This is God's will. And that's when uh, he was able to talk again. Uh, so uh, when that happened, Zacharias praised God, worshiped. I mean, jumping up and down, excited. Let's have a party. Look what God has done, given us a son. He's fulfilled everything he said he would. Not only that, our son will be the forerunner that the prophet spoke of. I mean, they're pumped up. They're excited. And you can imagine. It fulfilled all their expectations, all their hopes and dreams. And the whole, this whole uh, two chapters is like that. Okay? Uh, verse 15 through 17, just a little bit about John the Baptist is predicted. <coughs> Chapter 1, verse 15, he will be great. He will be great. Look at all the great things about John the Baptist there in verse 15 through 17. He will be great in God's view. I mean, that's much better than being great in men's view, which he will be also. But, I mean, to be great in God's view, he will be filled with the Holy Spirit. God will 
his, God's Spirit will personally guide him and teach him and help him, enable him. He will turn back many. In other words, he'll convert a lot of people to the truth. He'll, but God will use him to do that. And he'll be a forerunner in spirit and power and turn the hearts of the people to prepare them for the coming of Messiah. Make ready the people for their Lord. And so the greatness of John the Baptist and what he's going to do is laid out in, in this passage. And then verse 26, chapter 1, verse 26 through 56 is directed to Mary. Here's the next story. Here's young Mary, probably 14 years old. She's engaged to be married. And uh, in Middle East marriages, they after you're engaged, there was at least a year to prove you know, your virginity and, and wholesomeness and all that. So she's in that, that engagement period when they are still separate, but they've got a contract to marry each other. Uh, and at that time, verse 26, the angel Gabriel, again, appears to Mary. And we're told that she's a virgin, and she's engaged to be married to Joseph, <coughs> who's a descendant of David. Well, of course, that's important because uh, over and over, the Old Testament predicted that the Messiah would be a descendant of David from the tribe of Judah. And look what uh, verse 28 says. His greeting, the angel Gabriel's greeting. Hail, favored one. You ever heard that song, Ave Maria? It comes from right here. I'd sing it for you, but we don't have time. and You'd probably all walk out. But Ave Maria, this is where they get it. That's what it means, Ave or or uh, favored one. The Lord is with you. And naturally, uh, she was probably excited, her blood pressure probably went way up, her heart was racing, but she was troubled in the sense of, wait a minute, me? Why me? You see her humility here, and also she says, how can this be? <laughs> you know, the, the normal way that you have children, you know, I haven't done that. It, it's impossible. I can't be with child. How can this be? And the angel says, don't be afraid. You found favor with God. He's going to take care of this. And then in verse 32 through 34, an important passage, the fulfillment of what's called the Davidic covenant. In 2 Samuel 7, in the Old Testament, God tells King David, I am going to bring a Messiah my son, into the world, he's going to be a relative of yours. He's going to be one of your descendants, David. And he told David that I will cause him to sit on your throne. He'll be king. And he will reign over the house of Jacob. So he'll reign over Israel. And his kingdom will have no end. So there's three things there that you see. And the angel repeats those right here. So Jesus, the Messiah, is going to fulfill all the promises that God made to David. Uh, and Mary, you know, naturally said, how can this be because I'm a virgin? And the angel answered her and said, how? Totally unique event. Totally unique event. Never happened before, never happened again. It says, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. I take it he means... God is going to do a creative act 
within your womb. Leave it to Him. He's going to do it. Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High God will overshadow you. And for that reason, the holy offspring shall be called the Son of God. The one and only, unique Son of God. And behold, even your relative Elizabeth has also conceived a son in her old age. Now this is someone, a, a relative that lives in a different town that she knows, and she knows that Elizabeth is beyond childbearing, can have children. So this is a sign to Mary that God's giving. Not only is he providing John the Baptist, but he's, he's uh, engaging Mary with this to give her a sign. And immediately after the angel leaves, uh, she gets up and goes to see, Mary gets up and goes to see her uh, relative Elizabeth. And you see that there, the angel departed, and Mary arose and went with haste to the hill country to the city of Judah, entered the house of Zacharias and Elizabeth. And as soon as they greet, look what happens to the baby in Elizabeth, who will be John the Baptist. The baby leaped in her womb. God, you imagine that? Whoa, this is, man, this is for real. God has done this. This is incredible. And even at that time, she was filled with the Holy Spirit. So God is involved in this. He's behind it. He's leading them in and throughout all of this. And so she gives a praise and a worship to God. Elizabeth does. What, you know, why should I, how could I deserve this? Lord, thank you. I praise you. Worships him. Uh, and then in verse 46, after she finishes her discourse, Elizabeth, her praising and worshiping and, and, and just excitement, Mary gets her chance. We see Mary's response. Look at this, verse 46. By the way, you've heard this uh, before also. You ever heard of the Magnificat? The Magnificat? This is it. This is it. And it comes from uh, the first line. Mary says, my soul exalts the Lord, magnifies the Lord. That, that in Latin, magnificat is magnify. So they take that from the first line here. Mary's soul magnifies the Lord. So what's happening and what's been promised, she gives it all to the Lord. All glory to God. This is all about what he's doing and his program. Praise the Lord, my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. Notice also that she sees God as her Savior. She needs a Savior. So I'll allow you to figure out what that means, whether she sees herself as a sinner or not. I think so. And she has a Savior. She recognizes that. For he had regard for the humble state of his bond slave. I think that's awesome that Mary has this, this fabulous humility. She not only praises God and, is, and so reveres God, she also is in herself, by herself, incredibly humble. You see her humility there. Uh, it, it's a wonderful thing. Uh, she's basically saying, who am I? I'm nobody. Why would God show me such favor and do these wonderful things through me? 
Uh, and then everything else she said is all about God. You know, people today, they would probably, you know, based on all the professional athletes at least, they would, oh, that's, I'm going to do that. They'd pound their chest and strut around, spike the football a few times, you know, give a few interviews. You know, of course, I deserve this. I am the greatest. <laughs> you know? So it's awesome to see somebody like Mary who gives it all to God and says all these wonderful things about God. This whole speech of hers is about Him and His glory and how wonderful He is. It's about God's power, God's mercy, God's holiness, God's grace, God who fulfills all His promises, does everything He said He would do. All the Old Testament prophecies are being fulfilled. And she quotes all kinds of scripture there. She's rich in scripture. And then verse 57, you see the birth from uh, uh, 57 through 66, the birth of John the Baptist. Uh, after, after she gives hers, uh, the author Luke says, and then uh, John the Baptist uh, uh, six months later, or th excuse me, three months later uh, was born. Uh, and then at that time, Mary went back. Uh, but you see the, the dialogue and the little story with uh, Elizabeth and Zacharias. Remember, Zacharias can't speak. Then you see the story I told you about. Uh, as soon as the child's born and they're trying to figure out what his name is, suddenly Zacharias can speak. He says his name's going to be John. And then verse 67, you have Zacharias praising and worshiping God. Whoa, look what he's done. This is awesome. We've given up having children. Not only did he give us a son, this guy's going to be great in the eyes of God. He's going to do awesome and great things. And so you see his speech there, uh, praise and worship in verse 68 through 79, song of praise. Again, quoting all the Old Testament promises in his song. Uh, and then chapter 2, uh, we see the circumstances of Jesus' birth, 1 through 7. Uh, first thing, and this is classic Luke. Remember we talked about Luke being a, a, like a private detective, you know, being a doctor, a scientist, going to get it exactly right. He gives all these uh, dates that we need by telling who was the emperor, who was the governor, uh, who did this, who did that. He fixes the dates and all these things. Very helpful. In fact, in chapter 3, he gives... Uh, six different ways to fix the date. Here in chapter 2, he tells us uh, during the time, uh, the reign of Caesar Augustus. Caesar Augustus, uh, who was, by the way, the first emperor of Rome, first Roman emperor, Caesar Augustus. And it's very important. Uh, God's timing is incredible. His providence is incredible. This was absolutely the best time for Jesus to be born during the time of Caesar Augustus. This guy was not only the first Caesar, he was easily the, the greatest. The, the things he did were incredible. Uh, Caesar Augustus, he, he is the one, I don't know if you ever heard this saying, he brought what is called the Pax Romana, which is Roman peace. The whole world had a peace during this period that they'd never had before. He brought Rome, had conquered the whole Mediterranean world, all of Europe, most of the Middle East, and 
uh, Asia Minor, huge North Africa, huge territory, all the known world to these people. And he had brought peace to all the nations by conquering them, but he, he had literally opened up all the borders. And there was a peace like never before. You could travel. And not only that, he built what's called the Roman road. You heard that saying, all roads lead to Rome? He built them. And, of course, he built it for his own sake, you know, for commerce and travel and the whole deal. But what did God do? God used that uh, Roman peace and those Roman roads to send his missionaries out. And also, uh, he used, they used one language at this time for the first time ever. Everyone spoke Greek. Now, you spoke your own language, but everybody also spoke Greek. So you had one common language, Greek. So you could go anywhere and speak to anybody in the whole known world for the first time. Isn't that great? Just amazing how things were laid out like that. Incredible coincidences. Or the wonderful providence of God, which that's what I would say. So chapter 2, he gives us that it was during that time and Quirinius was the governor and uh, they issued a decree you know, for taxes that everybody had to go and fill out the census deal and you had to go to your original family's hometown and guess what? The original hometown of Joseph, Jesus' stepfather, you might say, or his father, legal father, uh, his, his uh, family's hometown was Bethlehem. Now, wait a minute. Earlier, we said that the Messiah was going to be born in a certain town. But there was a problem because Jesus' mother and father lived in Nazareth. So how could they possibly end up in Bethlehem? Well, just by chance. <laughs> they end up in Bethlehem to, to take the census, to register. And when they're there, she has the child. Very humble circumstances. Very humble circumstances, which I think is really important because when you contrast, you have a contrast of the humble circumstances of his birth, his parents were basically nobodies from a little bitty rural town, Nazareth, on the side of a hill, who never, never heard of these people. Nobody had. And what could possibly come from Nazareth, right? So when they get there, there's no room and they have to go into an animal stable and have the child. I mean, the humble state of his birth is incredible when you compare it to his exalted status as Lord, Son of God, and Savior of the world. You ever, you ever think about that? Here's this guy from these humble parents, born in a stable. No, nobody of any consequence recognized it. Obviously, Jesus didn't have a PR guy public relations guy if he had what would a public relations guy have done he would have had a PR campaign emails out mass mailings billboards advertising celebrities politicians he didn't have any of that that's what we'd have done he didn't, God didn't do any of that it was all the greatest humility witnesses were shepherds you know out in the country no politicians, no kings, 
No rich people. The humble circumstances of his birth. And who was he you see in verse, verse 11? The Savior, the Christ. Christ means the anointed one of God. The anointed one of God. And also his deity, the Lord. The Savior of the world. The anointed one of God who is also the Lord. Okay? Pretty awesome. He didn't come. A lot of people think, well, Jesus would have been a wonderful marriage counselor. Uh, he certainly would have fixed a lot of the social problems we have. Uh, he could have written some really good self-help books. Is that what he came for? <laughs> no. How about this? Was he a money manager? Well, people are praying, Lord, help me make that real estate deal. No, he wasn't a money manager. Jesus came to save sinners. That's it. That's it. That's the gospel. Praise God for it. And then chapter 2, after the shepherds uh, who had been told by the angel Gabriel in chapter uh, 2, they went out and told everybody, They made known, verse 17, the statements that the angels had given them. They went and saw him, and then they came back and told everybody. Again, praising, worshiping, party. Amazed at what God had done. And so the witnesses are piling up. Have you seen all these witnesses? The angels, Zacharias, Elizabeth, Mary, the shepherds. And now, in chapter 2, verse 21 through 38, you'll see two more Very important witnesses. Now, these two guys, Simeon and Anna, you won't see them in any of your uh, Christmas, uh, uh, you know, with the, what do you call it, the manger scenes. You won't see them in any of those. But they're incredibly important. And this is a great story about them here. Uh, They're they're two... uh, to people who hang out at the temple. And Mary and Joseph had to take the baby Jesus, according to the law, to the temple. He had to go there to be circumcised on the eighth day. Then he also, they had a purification ceremony after 40 days. And then if it was a, a firstborn son, they had to dedicate him to the Lord. And so they take him to the temple to do all that and to make the sacrifice. And look at verse 25, what happens. They walk up those southern steps into the temple, the temple area, the court of the Gentiles, and they're going to buy their little uh, turtle doves or pigeons to make a sacrifice, and they run into this old guy. And who is it? Verse 25. There was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. Simeon. And this guy, Simeon, he lived his whole life on the lookout. He lived his whole life expecting something. He was living in hope, joyous expectation. He was excited about what he knew was going to happen. He was anticipating it. That's what his life was about, living in that hope. He knew the prophecies about the Messiah, and he was expecting the Christ, and he believed before he died God would let him see him. So there's Simeon looking, expecting Filled with the Holy Spirit, it says in verse 26. 
says he's looking for the consolation or the comforting, the help for Israel. So Israel beaten down, subjugated, overtaxed, and he sees this deliverer as relieving all their trouble and all their problems. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he'd seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to carry out for him the custom of the law, then Simeon took him. He said, that's him. God revealed that this is it. This is the child. And so he takes him in his hands, and you have what is called, again in Latin, nunc dimittis, which is for the first two words there in verse 29. Now, Lord, isn't that great? I can't wait to say that <laughs> when I come face to face with the Lord. Now, finally, my problems are over. Now, Lord, peace. Now, Lord, thy servant can depart in peace. So he says, that's it. What I live for has happened. And he praises God and thanks him, for my eyes have seen thy salvation. See, Jesus is to him. Salvation. God has provided. And so, not only that, he gives a couple of uh, predictions or prophecies that Jesus would not only become to Israel, but also to all the nations, all the Gentiles, be a light to all the Gentiles as well. And then secondly, that Jesus would divide Israel, that some would reject him and some would receive him. And of course, that happened. And, and he predicted that, that Jesus would even divide families there in Jerusalem. And then verse 36 through 38, the last witness in, in this section is Anna, a prophetess. Verse 36, it just so happens, great timing, just as Simeon finishes his discourse, here comes Anna, another witness. The witnesses are piling up. And Anna looks and also recognizes him. She's a prophetess. You know what that is? Just a spokesperson for God. And she is revered. We're told she's righteous. People respect her. She also had been living with this same type of eager expectation, hope for this Messiah. And so she says, verse 36 through 38, She gives thanks to God. This is him, Lord, you've done it. My life is fulfilled. This is the one. And he is here for the redemption of all of Jerusalem. So he's the redeemer. He's come to save us. So again, the witnesses pile up. Let me close. Uh, you know, when, when you look at all these stories, it's, they're all the same. Eight stories in a row. The, they're looking for something, they're living for something, they're hoping for something, and God fulfills it. And then they praise God, worship God, and it's a great party. So I guess in closing, we got to ask ourselves, what are you looking for? What are you waiting for? What are you living for? What are you hoping for? 
Are you like Simeon and you're looking for the comfort of God? Looking for God to solve our problems, to help us, to bring us salvation? Are you like Anna, who's expecting, longing for that forgiveness, that redemption, and that eternal life that's been promised? Well, the bottom line is, Jesus, whatever you're waiting for, whatever you're living for, Jesus provides and fulfills whatever we need, whatever we hope for. The answer, the fulfillment is Jesus. Let me close in prayer. Lord, thank you so much for blessing us with these stories. The time when Jesus was born, our Savior came into the world, and uh, all these people who were expecting it, and you announced and you used as witnesses for this great event. Lord, I pray that we would be encouraged, that we would be built up, and we would see this good news as something to get excited about and praise and worship you for. And in Jesus' name I pray, amen.